dropping on my face. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. And welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, folks, we're getting close to that time. My sweet tooth is starting to kick in. I can feel the cavities forming. Now, I'm going to be honest, I eat candy year-round. That shouldn't surprise anyone, especially my dentist. But for some reason, candy tastes a little sweeter around Halloween. Maybe it's because it's free, it's being handed out, I didn't actually go out and buy it, or maybe it's all just psychological, which wouldn't surprise me. So I'm going to walk through my favorites. Coming in at number five, M&M's, tried and true. I have to put it in the top five because I just eat it so often. After dinner topper, throw in a couple of M&M's. Vanilla ice cream a little bland, throw on some M&M's. It's the one candy that I eat the most. Number four. Milky Ways. I'm really not a fan of caramel, or caramel for all you weirdos, but put it into milk chocolate and I am all for it. Apparently this next one is controversial, but Three Musketeers. Until I saw it trending on Twitter, I had no idea that Three Musketeers was the low bar of candy. But I agree with Dustin from Stranger Things. Top three candy bar. Number two, Reese's Pieces Buttercups. Now it's interesting, probably not, but not a huge fan of peanut butter, but you put that into chocolate, make it a little cup form, and bam, I am on that. But not all Reese's products are equal. I am not a fan of Reese's Pieces. I mean, I'll, I'll eat it, don't get me wrong. You put it in front of my face, it's, it's inside me. But I like when the peanut butter is a little more soft, rather than in the Reese's Pieces where it's just kind of crunchy and hard. Number one has to be Kit Kat. There's something about the combination of milk chocolate and crisp wafer. I could go through at least a bag of Kit Kats. I have to give a couple of honorable mentions. Now, Nestle Crunch almost snuck into the top five, but that's one of those candies that I really only eat around Halloween. I do like Twix, chocolate, caramel, cookie crunch. Charleston Chew, I have to tell you, you put that in the freezer, sure you're going to break a couple of teeth, but it's really worth it. Chocolate, marshmallow, can't go wrong. A sleeper candy bar, the 100 grand. Chocolate, chewy caramel, crunchy crisp rice. It's delicious, though that's a candy I can't have too many of. Three and I'm down on the couch for like eight hours. So what's your favorite Halloween candy? Hit me up on Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag MattWatchThat. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is skip it. Two stars watch at your own risk. Three stars standard fare. Four stars worth checking out. And five stars must see. Now if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. 
I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie Jacob's Ladder from 1990. It was directed by Adrian Lin, who helmed Flashdance, Nine and a Half Weeks, Indecent Proposal, and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Director of Fatal Attraction. The screenplay was written by Bruce Joel Rubin, who scribed Deep Impact, Stuart Little 2, The Last Mimsy, and won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay written for the screen for Ghost. Now for a little trivial trivia. Jacob's Ladder was the inspiration for the video game franchise, Silent Hill. The movie starts off in the jungles of the Mekong Delta. A group of U.S. soldiers are attacked with a combination of bullets and chemical warfare. It's truly brutal imagery and a bang-up way to begin a film. It transitions to present day where Jacob Singer wakes up on a New York City subway. Very brave of him to fall asleep. He sees disturbing imagery like a homeless person with an additional appendage, figures in white masks with black eyes. You kind of assume this might be PTSD. Jacob Singer is portrayed by Tim Robbins, who starred in Bull Durham, The Shawshank Redemption, and won an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Mystic River. Jacob lives with his girlfriend Jezebel Pimpkin, aka Jezzy, who's played by the late Elizabeth Pena. She's known for La Bamba, Rush Hour, and voiced the character of Mirage in the greatest superhero movie, The Incredibles. They both work in the postal office. Jacob receives a package which includes pictures of his ex-wife and children. They're divorced, which was most likely prompted by the death of one of their sons, performed by an uncredited Macaulay Culkin. After he visits his chiropractor, Jacob walks down the street and is almost hit by a speeding car, where he has another vision of these odd figures in the back seat. He goes to the Veteran Affairs Hospital to see Dr. Carlson, who headed the outpatient program, but the nurse has no record of him or the doctor he's looking for, despite the fact that Jacob has been coming there for years. Something strange in the neighborhood. Here's a quote without context. Jake, New York is filled with creatures. Jacob and Jesse attend a party where a palm reader, played by S. Apatha Murkison, tells him that he's already dead. If that's a spoiler, I'm probably going to be a little pissed. While people are dancing, he has another episode which triggers flashbacks and disturbing imagery, leading to Jacob becoming sick. He's given an ice bath to lower his fever. When he wakes up, he's in bed with his wife Sarah. Is this a hallucination from the fever? Or is this reality? Or an alternative reality? This is something to look out for. Actors also appearing in this movie are Jason Alexander, Eric LaSalle, Ving Rhames, and Louis Black. Yes, comedian Louis Black. Jacob's Ladder is a mind mess of a movie. You're never really sure if what you're watching is reality. I wouldn't necessarily say it was confusing. The storyline is pretty straightforward, but there's just this feeling that you know something's off, but you can't put your finger on what it is. Movies are supposed to play with your emotions. Many have made me laugh and cry, sometimes get scared. But it's rare that a movie makes me feel despair. Like I've been attacked by a Dementor. I think this one falls under the same umbrella as Requiem for a Dream. I'm so glad I've seen these films, but I'm not sure how much repeat viewing it is for pure enjoyment. I really think it's brilliant filmmaking all around. I was never bored. It kept my interest. I didn't know what was going on, but that's okay. This is a type of movie that doesn't get made anymore. It's for adults. It's a mature movie. It makes you think, challenges you a little. It doesn't insult your intelligence. It was executive produced by Caracol chairman Mario Kasser, who is responsible for First Blood, Total Recall, The Doors, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and Stargate. I would say he's pretty financially stable.
The cinematography was captured by Jeffrey L. Kimball, whose filmography includes Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Electric Boogaloo, True Romance, and The Expendables. There were some really nice shots and off-putting imagery. I always love a rack focus where things are blurry and then it becomes clear. They did it really nicely with a shot of a spider's web. I'm not usually a fan of jerky camera movements, but when you're depicting the chaos of war, it really works well. And I really think they did a great job of visually capturing the experiences of trauma. I know it goes much more deeper than that in the movie, but that's the overarching experience. At least in my view. As I said, this movie was a bit of a mind mess. It was edited by Tom Ralph, who's known for Taxi Driver, War Games, Heat, and won an Academy Award for Best Film Editing of The Right Stuff. A movie I want to see, but 3 hours and 13 minutes, come on, man. I'm not sure who the lead special effects artist was, but the whole team deserves credit. All of the effect sequences were practical with no use of post-production enhancements, and with that in mind plus camera trickery, it really is an impressive feat of filmmaking. The score was composed by Marie Char, who wrote the music for Witness, Ghost, Gorillas in the Mist, and won an Academy Award for Best Music Original Score for Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and A Passage to India. First off, the main theme is great. It's been used in other movie trailers, instantly recognizable. The score is one of my favorite parts of the movie. It leaves you feeling a little unresolved because the chord structure, rather than ending in a happy major chord, it always ends in something minor or diminished. Now I know that might mean nothing to 90% of you, but listen to the score and you'll know exactly what I mean. The soundtrack features songs by LaBelle, James Brown, Al Jolson, and Marvin Gaye, mostly played from sources like radios, etc. The runtime is 1 hour 53 minutes. It had a budget of $25 million and grossed $26.1 million at the box office, barely breaking even. Ultimately, the movie comes down to Whirlybird, Profits, Mr. Postman, Hot-Blooded, To Tell the Truth, Lucky Day, Demons, War Games, Survivors, and Sunny Boy. I give it three and three-fourths out of five stars. Add half a star if you're an amateur filmmaker. This is required viewing. A remake was released in 2019 because why not? If you've seen Jacob's Ladder and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along. Each episode I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. As I mentioned in episode 13, I'm a huge fan of movie scores. They are modern classical music to me. It's great having on in the background as I work. The only time it's distracting is when I hear a familiar piece of music and I start thinking about that particular scene, and I'm like, damn, I, I really want to watch this movie right now. But when CDs were popular, I had quite the collection of movie scores. And I know I reminisce a lot on this podcast, but I'm not stuck in that time. For the most part, the evolution of modern technology has been beneficial, especially in that you can go on YouTube right now and search for any movie score to start listening to. The access to content is amazing. Granted, I'm sure the composers aren't happy because they're probably not getting paid, but as a consumer, eh, it's nice. But the one thing that always annoyed me about movie scores is when they weren't in sequential order. I like listening to scores as they appeared in the movie. That's how I've always heard it. But I understand when you take a score and remove the visual elements that accompany it, that might not pace well when you're listening to it on a CD or playlist. 
the producers might purposely space out the slower songs between faster-paced songs. So I get it, but I just don't like it. Now, a score that I love but have always been disappointed with the release is Alien. It's an incredible score by Jerry Goldsmith. Moody, haunting, atmospheric. But if you bought the CD, it's incomplete. A few years later, they released an extended version, and it still doesn't have all the music. On YouTube, Alvaro G. Plata actually compiled the Alien score so that it's not only in sequential order, but includes all the pieces of music that appear in the movie. For those who are unaware, Ridley Scott used a few pieces of music from another Jerry Goldsmith score, Freud, that were in key scenes including the acid blood sequence and Dallas in the airshaft. I guess due to rights issues they couldn't include in the Alien score when it was released, but this is exactly what you want to hear as a fan. It's an auditory gem, I listen to it frequently. I'll post a couple of my favorite pieces on the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. Every so often you have to break the format. I'm not going to be recommending a movie or TV series. Today, it's a different kind of workout for your eyes. That's right. I'm recommending some reading material. When you first start learning a new skill, there's always a structure or format you're supposed to follow, but at some point, you break away from that and figure out your own way of doing things. For me, when I was a film major, we learned the basic structure of a screenplay. There are three acts which are divided by plot points which occur on page 15 that propels the story forward, and page 90 that leads to the climax of the movie. Every screenwriting book has their own methods, but it boils down to a similar format. But I'm the type of person that needs structure, and if you want me to hit a certain point on page 15, I'll figure out how to make it happen. Sometimes, though, you can get too caught up in the formatting and structure. When I was growing up, there wasn't any internet, so all I had as reference were books. Sidfield's Screenplay, How Not to Write a Screenplay by Denny Martin Flynn. They would usually include excerpts of screenplays, but nothing extensive. So when Al Gore invented the internet and websites started posting screenplays, I started to read the scripts of my favorite movies, and the first time I read Alien, I was so taken aback because it broke so many of the conventions of screenwriting. There weren't one or two complete sentences of description followed by dialogue. It was all very short sentences. Interior, engine room. Empty, cavernous. Interior, engine cubicle. Circular, jammed with instruments. All of them idle. Console chairs for two. Empty. And it actually increased the tension because it was like reading hyperventilation. I hope that makes sense. I really can't explain it. But that screenplay changed how I thought about writing. It's the same thing when I started transitioning to novels. I saw the movie The Road with Viggo Mortensen and Cody Smith-McPhee and really enjoyed it. So I wanted to read the book it was based off of by Cormac McCarthy. When I opened it up, Immediately, the format was completely different than any book I'd ever read. He didn't use any quotation marks, which, admittedly, can be tricky sometimes to know what's dialogue versus description, but just the fact that he was doing things differently opened up my eyes. But Cormac McCarthy is an established writer and can do whatever the hell he wants and get away with it. Now, if you're a new screenwriter or novelist, it's better to play it safe and follow the traditional structure that is familiar with production studios and publishing companies, but reading the Alien screenplay and the Road novel made me think differently as a writer and gave me the confidence to break conventional formats and find my voice. 
that's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I plan on having interactive elements, so follow, subscribe, and like for all the latest news, updates, and polls. Until next time, come on, let's go up. And I know I remel... remelis? Remelamadingdong. They would usually include experts... experts... excerpts. She's known for La Bamba, Rush Hour, and voiced the character of Mirage in the greatest superhero movie, The Expendables. <laughs> no, not The Expendables. <laughs>